Um, but this is Aaron, and um, he's going to spend a few minutes just talking about some of the work that they're doing in Ethiopia so that you all can know um, what they do. And if you have any other questions, uh, they're coming to the lunch after. So by all means, I think you are, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, to uh, have any questions for them, feel free to talk. But he's got some pictures and everything, so I'm going to turn it over to Aaron. Thank you. It is a lot of fun to be here. We were just able to be in the kids' uh, Sunday school class, and it's really encouraging just to see um, how much you guys pour into studying the Word and taking that seriously in your lives. Um, starts from a young age, and we're about to do it in here. So um, I want to share with you a little bit about um, us, what we do in Ethiopia, and how you guys are a part of that. So our family, were from Savannah, um, and about four years ago, my family uh, moved to Ethiopia, and um, gosh, I guess about nine years ago, my brother and his family moved to Ethiopia, and we are a part of a church planting team that has been in Ethiopia for about 60 years now. So in the 60s, um, some missionaries went to Ethiopia, and they helped to plant a church, and that church has grown over the last 60 years to where now it's about 140 churches spread out throughout Western Ethiopia. And this is our family. So uh, Morgan and the kids, Anna, Elijah, and James, and one of our dogs. And the main work that we focus on in Ethiopia is two things. So we, we help to plant churches in new and unreached areas, so places that there is not a gospel presence we help to plant churches in those areas, and then we help to train up leaders within those churches. Those are the two main things we do. We do other work, but those are the two main things that we like to focus on. Um, and one of the exciting things that we are, uh, one of the things we're excited about is that you all are um, partnering with us now in that training upside of building up leaders um, within those churches. And that takes two, two forms in how we work there. So one of them is um, through regional trainings. This is one of the areas I've been overseeing where we will actually travel out to an area, host a training where we bring together about 30 or so church leaders, and we study the scripture. We ask them, well, what do your churches need? What troubles are you having? Uh, and they'll tell us things like, well, there's, there's a lot of new people coming to church, but we don't know a whole lot about the church doctrine, or um, we're having some difficulties with our elders, or we have plans to grow and expand, but we don't know how to make a budget and plan for that. And so we help to bring together people who can teach towards those subjects to help strengthen and encourage them. Um, so that's regional trainings. This is a picture of one of our churches in Ethiopia in a place called Asosa. And um, this is how a lot of our churches look when they first start off. They are um, tarp buildings, and people will start to gather there. And as they grow and as they um, become stronger, we help them to um, find a permanent location and build a permanent structure with them. Um, this is the other side of the training. And one of the areas that you guys are really going to start digging into is our training center there. So this is a physical classroom where we will bring church leaders into and over the course of about six months, um, our pastors from within our churches get about 240 hours of uh, essentially almost seminary-level training. And this is important because most of the pastors we work with, they are not going to have an opportunity to go to seminary. They don't 
have the opportunity to leave their families and go do that, and they can't afford to do it in most cases. So for the most part, this is the best Bible education that they will get and be able to take back to their churches and strengthen them. So in this training center, we teach on introduction to New Testament, Old Testament. We teach pastoral counseling. We teach leadership. We teach uh, church history, Ethiopian church history, all kinds of different things. And it's really fun because we as missionaries do some of the teaching, but we don't do all of the teaching. We bring in uh, national church leaders to come in and teach towards these topics. Um, and so this is, this is what that training center looks like. Uh, these are, we're in a new training center space now that we're working on building where we can house, it's about 20 students, and um, we'll have a training center for them, dormitory space, bathrooms, all of that, where they can come and stay with us for a week to two weeks at a time and get a um, really good level of education. Um, and this is important, and we're really excited to be able to do this because then they will go back to their churches and continue to strengthen their churches. And just like we were doing this morning, we read through the scripture, and then we started asking questions. You know, what, what do you read in scripture? What do you see with this? What, how can you apply this in your life? This is the same thing that we're able to do with our church leaders in Ethiopia, where, where they will have questions. They'll say, okay, well, I read this passage, and I, I don't understand it. And then we get to just share some context and dig into it with them. Um, so that's a little bit about our training center, what that looks like. Um, and how you guys are now a part of that is helping to support the training center directly. And that is hugely important because it takes money and it's becoming more and more money to do these trainings as everything in Ethiopia and throughout the world really is just increasing in cost. But um, these trainings make a huge impact in the churches in Ethiopia and you guys are a part of that. Um, one of the ways, so that's one of the ways uh, that you guys can help to encourage the churches there, but the other way is through prayer. Um, we get messages from churches in Ethiopia about uh, the conflict, and some of you all may have seen or heard of the conflict that's going on in Ethiopia, and it is um, really impacting our churches, and we would love to ask for you to pray for them, pray that... Um, even in the midst of the conflict, that the, the church leaders would be bold and be protected, um, and that they would have wisdom as how to continue on in their ministry and in the space of conflict and tension, um, but then also how to be a light, even in that, when there is racial tension, how can they be a light that reflects what the gospel is, that doesn't have that racial, and that doesn't have ethnic, that our churches would be a place where that is not seen. So um, pray for our churches, that they would be strengthened and encouraged. Matt, can you pray for us? Yeah, so just by way of uh, reminder, we, Hope is going to be supporting specifically uh, the training center and sustaining that training center, um, hopefully getting over there at some point to do some work with, with the team and, and whatnot. But um, if, you're, if you want to support Aaron's family or Travis's family or any more information on any of that, by all means, feel free. Uh, don't feel like you can't uh, contribute in some other way or are interested in going. I mean, we, we would love to talk about that as well. Um, so let me pray for them. And uh, just, you know, by way of reminder, we are s just strangely blessed uh, to be able to gather in, in, in freedom for now. 
Um, even, you know, talking about Romania last week in uh, Ethiopia, they can still gather. But, you know, <laughs> early on when the apostles were beaten and, and they went away rejoicing and they prayed not that they would be safe. Don't leave. Don't leave. I'm not preaching. No, 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 I'm not praying. I'm praying. But just, just this reality that any one of us, it could be the day that we just, hey, this is the day that we're not coming home because of the gospel. And, and we, we don't really have to deal with that, but we want to pray for boldness, that we would be worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And, and that's a hard prayer. Nobody really wants to think about that, but that's the reality of the world we live in. And until the Lord returns, that's going to continue to be the reality that we live in. So we do want to pray for you guys. Um, and not just the work that's happening in Ethiopia, but all over the world. So let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you again for this time to hear from, from Aaron about the work that you're doing. Again, this is a big world that you have called us to uh, multiply and fill the earth and subdue, and, and, and this mandate remains for us. And so we want to work to spread the gospel message, the message of the, the coming kingdom, and the message of your good news that that people can be saved and have a relationship with you. And we want to do that here in Savannah. We want to do that in Ethiopia and, and Romania and all over. And so, Lord, I want to pray specifically for Aaron and Morgan and Anna and Elijah and James and, and Travis and Emily and uh, Charlie, Claire and uh, Jude and just their team, uh, the, the training center. I pray that Ethiopia would, would just, just explode with conversion and uh, awakening, and that the gospel would be the thing that heals the nation, not governments, not ceasefires, but really the gospel would transform uh, the nation of Ethiopia. And I pray that you would sustain them. Uh, it is hard work, just like in Romania, the, 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 the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. So I pray that you would sustain their team financially, uh, but more spiritually, uh, draw near to them uh, and, and make them ever aware of the work that you are doing and the way that you are providing and sustaining. And Lord, I pray for, for hope that you would help us um, as we partner with them and support them, that you would help us to be an encouragement to them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Um, something I've learned lately in my own personal study and reading is that one of the most important things about me and I would say also I think about you, is what you think about God. That is one of the most important things about you. So how you think about God uh, will define a lot of other things. So do you think of him as kind of a cosmic policeman? So he's, he's trying to catch people doing wrong. So he's kind of like the, the, um, the cop with the radar gun you know, who's just waiting to see when are you going to do something wrong uh, because he can give you a ticket. Uh, do you see God as kind of an old grandfather man in the sky with a long beard and he's just kindly and kind of forgetful and he just kind of gives you what you want, you know, and, and he's, he's, just, he's just an old granddad. Maybe you're a closet deist. Maybe you're one of the people who's embraced this idea that God sort of set the world in motion. He got it going, uh, and now he's just sort of letting it run its course, and he doesn't have that much actually to do with the day-to-day -day operations. Or maybe your view of God is just 
more scary. Maybe you think of God kind of like the mythological gods of the Greeks and the Romans who were basically just men, capricious, vengeful, given to fits of rage, untrustworthy, and so not to be trusted. Very related then to what we think about God is how often we think about God. So my question for you this morning, and specifically related to our passage in James today, is does God occupy your thoughts? And so a lot of people, I think, and, and you've probably heard this before, this is very Francis Schaeffer, if you've ever read any Schaeffer, uh, but they've divided their lives into these two sections. There's my secular life, and there is my sacred life, or my spiritual life. And so in, in this construct, things like God's Word and prayer and the church occupy the sacred life. So faith manners sort of matters for our inner life, for the life to come. Church on Sunday, maybe if you're given to having a quick morning devotion every now and then, and, and that sort of suffices to remind yourself of the, of the spiritual things. But then the rest of life is sort of this lower tier Schaefer, if you remember, if you, if you read those kinds of things, had an upper tier and a, a lower tier. And so the, the rest of life is lived in the, sac- in the secular world, the real world. And so we kind of think that it's the, it's the real world that actually matters, and faith isn't relevant there. So faith is relevant in the spiritual world, but faith isn't relevant, relevant in, the, in the real world. And so in the real world, you have to be practical. You, you need to be practical. I mean, let's just get real. Um, the, the, the stuff about God is great on Sundays, but, you know, we need to live in the real world. And I, and I do believe, sadly, many Christians continue to separate their lives. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, which I, I highly recommend uh, for a discussion of these kind of things, she says our lives are often fractured and fragmented with our faith locked into a private realm of church and family, The aura of worship dissipates after Sunday, and we unconsciously absorb secular attitudes the rest of the week. And so for many people, God doesn't enter their thoughts during the week because he just doesn't matter to that part of their lives. What would it look like if you kept God in your thoughts all the time. And I'm not suggesting that we need to go and live like monks and just read our Bible and meditate and pray all the time, but that at work, school, practice, all the time, even, even at home, if we were thinking about God and desiring to please Him. And I've sat with Christians, I've sat with believers who consider that to be an unreasonable expectation. And I I don't know whether that's shocking to you or whether that's how you would think, but I've had people say to me, you know, no one lives like that. I have to get up in the morning. I have to go into the real world. And for them, the real world doesn't really intersect with God who lives up there. But James believes that the God who lives up there is, in fact, intimately connected with the lives that we live down here. And so we've seen there is this wisdom from above that James has been talking about. We started way back in August with this wisdom from above, and it is to be received, it is to be sought out, it is to be applied, and it is to be obeyed seven days a week, 
24 hours a day. And this isn't impractical. It's actually the way that God created for us to live. A Christian, consider this with me. I I, I think this is true. I believe this is true. A Christian is a person who is committed to doing the will of God all the time. A Christian is a person who is committed to doing the will of God all the time. We may fail. We may wrestle with the world and the flesh and the devil, but I hope it's true of you, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you would say, no, I am committed to doing God's will. Because a person who does not want to do the will of God is in rebellion against him. And that person is not saved. So my hope for us today is that we will see the importance of living our lives day to day with an awareness of God and a desire to do His will. And that's what our passage talks about this morning. It's a very practical passage. I think it relates back to verse 7, which Matt talked about last week, where James says, submit yourselves to God. How do we submit ourselves to God? Again, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And so here's my my little outline for the morning. We're going to need to realize our transience, recognize our reliance, repent of our arrogance, and respond in obedience. And I'll give you each one of those as we move through the passage. And I hope you'll see, too, James believes that there is foolishness in that two-tiered life. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. And so to think that we can serve God in private and then go out and worship the gods of this world in public is actually spiritual adultery. It's, it's what James would have called being a friend of the world back at the beginning of chapter 4. So let's dive into this passage this morning. I'm going to take this, these passages. There's only uh, five verses. I'll take each verse and read it as we come to it. So first of all, let's realize our transience. Let's realize our transience. Verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes." All right, so James starts off by saying, come now, which frankly sounds a little more Old Testament than New Testament. So come now, when you, when you think of the Old Testament prophets, you can think of guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah standing out near the temple where all the people are flocking into the temple, and they're prophesying, and they're saying, behold, come now. They're trying to get their attention, and actually James says this here uh, at the beginning of verse 13, and then he says it in chapter 5, verse 1, the next passage, and that's the only place that phrase is found in all of the New Testament. So twice right here, James says, come now, behold, picture picture a mother who is is trying to get the attention of, of her child, saying, look at me, look at me, and listen to what I'm about to say. And he says, you who say, so he's got a a specific group of people in mind, you who say, I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to go to that place, I'm going to trade, and I'm going to make a profit. So he is speaking to those people who have no regard for God in their daily lives. So if you are that person, James is saying, come now, behold, listen to me this morning. Now let me make it clear, James is not condemning 
these individual actions. It is not wrong to go to a town. It's not wrong to trade and make a profit. It's not wrong to plan. We all planned to be here this morning. I have planned what I will preach through the beginning of 2023. You plan to go to the grocery store. You plan to go buy food. We've planned Christmas parties. We've planned to have lunch together after church this morning. Some of you have trips on your schedule. You need to be in this city or that city for work. You've planned to have a meeting. It's not wrong to plan to make a profit. Jesus speaks of wise investments with the expectation of making a fruitful return. So what is it that James is calling out? What is he saying is wicked about these people. James is calling out the attitude that leaves God out of the planning. So these are plans that are made without any regard for God or for His will, and James is warning them. He's warning them, don't be one of those people who say, I will do what I want, when I want, how I want to do it. So I've told you before, when I first moved back to Savannah, I participated in doing funerals for people who didn't have pastors. And uh, I, I worked with Hubert Baker, and I, I heard a lot of crazy, crazy funeral songs. The, the genre of funeral songs is a very, very interesting genre. And I, I heard some, I'll, I won't, I'm not going to talk about it up here, but you can ask me later, that were cringe-inducing, okay? Absolutely cringe. So I, I googled some of the most popular funeral songs, and some of them were surprising. I didn't expect. Simply the Best by Tina Turner, uh, is one of the top funeral songs right now. Um, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life from Monty Python. And uh, You Are the Wind Beneath My Wings, you know, which is kind of a funny one. You know, you were, you were always there within my shadow, um, but you were the wind beneath my wings. Um, but here's the one I expected. I expected this to be there, and it was indeed there. I Did It My Way by Old Blue Eyes, Frank Sinatra. Here's, here's the last verse. This is the last verse of I Did It My Way. What is a man, what has he got, if not himself, that he has, then he has not, to say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels? The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Brothers and sisters, that is satanic. That is satanic. And yet, many would sit there today at a funeral, and they would hear those words with tears in their eyes, smiling and thinking of the deceased, thinking, yes, he did. Ah, yes, he did. Good for him. He did it his way. Not good for him. Not good for him. Because if he lived like that, truly, he's in hell. Because that man is a rebel. Frank said it himself. I, I, I didn't need, bow the knee to anybody. And I hope that no one in here this morning would have, I did it my way sung at your funeral. But if you think you can leave the, your faith at the, at the door of your house on the way out in the morning and enter into the real world, then you're, you're living like Frank Sinatra because you are what we would call a practical atheist. Now, by the way, there's a name for this sin. There's actually a name for this sin, and it's a word you've heard before. The name for this sin is ungodliness. Jerry Bridges in his book, excellent book, Respectable sins. Very, very helpful book. He defines the sin of ungodliness this way. Living one's life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. Someone can lead a respectable life and still be an 
ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant. And the reason that that Bridges calls his book Respectable Sins is because these are sins, he says, that we often just, we don't think they're that bad. They're sins that he says we tolerate in ourselves. So sins that we live with, like jealousy and pride and anger that seem comparatively small. But how does God view ungodliness? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All right, so what is James' antidote then for ungodliness? What does he say ought to change our mind? And remember, the title of this little section is our transience. Remember our transience. James suggests that the antidote for such ungodliness is that we understand how frail we are, that we are fragile creatures. We're more temporary than we realize. James says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. How much control do you have over tomorrow? None. None of us know. It is more certain that Jesus is going to return than it is that all of us are going to make it to lunch in an hour. Proverbs 27.1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You know, really, you would think we would have all learned a little something from 2020. And, and I think it's easier for us to think of these things now on the other side of that, because we all watched the world change in a matter of days, right? We went through that together. The things we took for granted evaporated. All of a sudden, the calendar was clear. Weddings, graduations, vacations, all of our plans were canceled. We moved into this building with great anticipation in February of 2020, and then we took nine weeks off. Bigger than that, how much control do you even have over how long you will live Your life is a vapor. That word means a breath. We're like the steam over a boiling pot that appears and then vanishes. And James is not saying that we cease to exist. He is saying that we will be here one minute, and the next minute we will not. There's a lot of wisdom. There is wisdom. I know that our world wants to not think about death, but there is wisdom in numbering our days Not to live in fear of death, but to be reminded that life is fleeting. If the average lifespan is 77 years, if you're 15 years old in this room, you have 744 months left. If you're a 45-year-old in this room, you have 384 months left. If you're a 65-year-old, you have 144 months left left. Moses prays, God, teach us to number our days. Why? Because it humbles us. It reminds us that we are not independent. We are dependent. It is no secret. I, I've not made it a secret that I love the ministry of Randy Alcorn. He, he calls his ministry eternal perspective ministries, and all of his writing or a lot of his writing is, is geared towards getting people to think in light of eternity. <coughs> Well, it's hard to live in light of eternity when you think that you're going to live forever. 
What's the point if things are going to just keep getting better and better here? And that's why in his little book, The Treasure Principle, which is one of my favorites, very short, the treasure principle itself says you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. We know, brothers and sisters, we are going to exist for all of eternity. In light of eternity, our 70 or 80 years here on this earth will be just just the tiniest little instant. And it's absolute foolishness to live for this instant when God has told us that we are going to exist forever. Jesus is very direct in Luke chapter 2. This is a parable. Let me read it to you. I won't ask you to turn there. Just read it. He told them a parable saying, the land of the rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Do you see why James starts this section by saying, come now, come now you who say, we will go to this place and to that place, and we will make money and we will make trade, but they have no thought of God. Because all you savvy business planners are living foolishly. That's his message. You savvy people are living foolishly. Because here's the truth. Earthly perspectives say, how can I plan for the next 30 years? Eternal perspectives say, how can I plan for the next 30 million years? So when we realize our frailty, we should look to the one who promises to help us. And that's point number two, that we would recognize our reliance. Verse 15, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So in light of our frailty, we should recognize our reliance. So the follower of Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to do it my way. The follower of Jesus says, I will do it his way. So Probably one of the biggest, like, just single issues that I get asked to help people with as a pastor is that, that they would help, need help somehow, like, knowing God's will for their lives. So questions related to, like, what should I do or, or what will happen? And so it's interesting, when people come to me and they ask for help discerning God's will, they're usually thinking that it's something very mysterious, that God's will is mysterious, it's, it's hidden, it's like a, a code that needs to be cracked. What is God's will for my life? But here's the thing, most of God's will for your life is not a mystery at all. So God has revealed on the pages of Scripture God's will for your life, all right? So here it is. Let me give you a few examples. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. All right, so if somebody comes and asks you, what is the will of God for my life? You can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, God's will for your life is that you rejoice and that you pray and that you give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians 3, uh, 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. How unsophisticated is that? What is the will of God? Help me understand the mystery of the will of God. Well, God wants you to be thankful, he wants you to pray, he wants you to rejoice, and he wants you to abstain from sexual immorality. It's got to be deeper than that, right? Well, there's more. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You see my point. Do you really want to know the will of God? It's not that mysterious. It's actually quite accessible. Paul prays for the Colossians. He prays for them that they may know the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You can know the will of God. Do you ever think, I would serve God if? I would serve God if I had a bigger house. I would serve God if I didn't have all these children running all over the place. I would serve God if my spouse would just get it together. I would serve God if I just lived somewhere more cosmopolitan. Or here's one, I will serve God. I will serve God when I graduate from high school. And then you get to that and you go, okay, I'll serve God when I graduate from college. Wait, no, I will serve God when I get married. I will serve God when the kids get out of the house. I will serve God when I make my first million. I will serve God when I finally get out of this lousy place. Everybody thinks they would be able to serve God better if their circumstances would just change. But clearly the scriptures teach me that I should seek to do the will of God where I am right now. Our lives can be devoted to doing the will of God tomorrow morning when we get up and go about our day. I know what the will of God for my life is, but I don't know what will happen I know what God's will for me is tomorrow, but I don't know what will happen tomorrow. And so James says, the person who lives this way would then say, if the Lord wills. I don't know what's going to happen. And they're not magic words. They're not lip service. James is speaking of an attitude that places the highest priority on bringing every plan, dream, or goal before God in prayer. So from James' perspective, it makes perfect sense for us to say to one another, I will see you tomorrow if the Lord wills. Because I don't know. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. But what do I know? I know that God wants me to rejoice and pray and give thanks and avoid sexual immorality and do good that I might win others. Third, repent of our arrogance. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. There's a theme of, of, of arrogance that runs all the way through chapter 4, the wicked nature of pride. Verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The one who speaks evil of his brother sets himself up as judge. A life lived without thought of God is arrogant and wicked. Arrogance is the root of ungodliness because ungodliness says, I can do this myself. Or worse, I will do this by myself. Even though I'm a vapor that appears for a moment and is gone, I don't need God in my thoughts to direct my actions. And brothers and sisters, there is no third way. There is only humble submission to God and arrogant opposition to God. And James says, arrogant opposition to God is a boastful lie. 
Blind spots are blind spots for a reason. If I could see them, they wouldn't be my blind spots. It's always easy to see other people's blind spots. You ever notice that? There's a sense in which we are all blessed because we have so much. We are so well-fed. We are well-clothed. We live in relative luxury. But I think the blessings that we enjoy may be a source of a blind spot in us collectively because we think that we got all of this by ourselves. It's so easy to think that we have everything that we need and we don't need God and we don't depend on Him because we don't think we have to. And I think COVID has caused this, this like shift in our society in stability and comfort I think there was obvious fear about the disease. I think a lot of people became afraid because they might get sick or they might die. But there were a lot of other issues related to like our rights and the economy and the ease with which we're able to get things. And many professing Christians are very upset about these things. And and I'm not saying that they're not important on some level, but the level of upsetness, the heart reaction that comes out to these shifts that have taken place in our lives, has it made you angry that you can't get the things that you used to be able to get? Has it made you fearful? Or have you seen this shift as a chance to depend on God more? If it's harder to get things from the grocery store, is that a reason to be mad? Or is it a reason to say, I need to depend more on God? I will get these things if the Lord wills. And I do think that these last three years have exposed a real arrogance, even among Christians, that says, we got these things for ourselves, we deserve these things, we will fight for these things. And I think James says, come now, who do you think you are? Because we don't know the future. And the world may continue to change. The world may continue to change, and things may get more expensive, and things may get more difficult. Things may get more difficult specifically for Christians or it may not. We don't know. But God doesn't want us to get worked up about things that haven't happened yet. He desires us to do His will right now. And then if things change, He expects us to do His will then too. Which leads to our fourth point, that we should respond in obedience. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, For him, it is sin. There are two verses in James that ring in my ears almost daily. The first one we'll get to in a few weeks. It's in chapter 5, verse 12. James says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Almost never does a day go by that I don't think I need to make my yes be yes. I need to do the thing that I've said I would do. But the second verse is this one. If I know the right thing to do and don't do it, it's sin. I I think we should chisel this verse in our hearts, because I think it's a great picture of what it means to walk by the Spirit. If we know the good we ought to do, we should take that as from the Lord, and we should do it. I think this relates to what I was trying to talk about a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about our Romania trip, that Jesus was always responding to the people in front of him. He always sees the need as from the Father, and I think we should too. So go and look at the parables. If you go and look at the parables of Jesus, what you'll see is that they are almost always warnings to people who failed to act in obedience. 
So the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan has nothing to say to the robber who beat the guy up. I mean, that's bad, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. The parable is a condemnation of the two men who saw the man's need and kept walking by on the other side. And it's a commendation of the man who stopped to help. So when you see a need, see it as an opportunity to help somebody. Don't see it as an option. Think of it as an opportunity brought to you by the Lord. It is also the Lord's will that we should obey. Do you know that Jesus died so that we can obey? Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. We were rebels against God. We have been purchased by his blood so that we might be made like him. And to be like Jesus is to live in obedience to the Father. There is a notion out there today, and I don't think it's right, but there's a notion out there today that says we can't obey. There's nothing good in us, therefore we can't obey, and we shouldn't desire to please God. We should just depend on the righteousness of Christ knowing that we can't actually obey. I was with a group of young men one time, and I I was talking about doing something to please God, and he said he thought that was wrong to tell somebody to try to please God because you can't please God. But that's not what the Bible says at all. And I do think this is dangerous teaching. I think this teaching that says you can't obey is very discouraging. Yes, We are saved by faith and not by works. Yes, I will stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ because my own works are filthy rags. Full stop. Praise God. But having been saved by the finished work of Christ, God's will is that we get busy pleasing Him. God's will is that we obey. God's will is that we make it our ambition to please Christ. And here's the good news. Because he has given you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you, contrary to what I said earlier, I believe we can obey. We can obey Jesus Christ. And it can be our joy to do so. And as we've seen, there will be rewards in heaven for us as we do. That is the teaching of the New Testament. So be thankful for the finished work of Christ in your life and then live in obedience to him as the Lord of your life. All right, so why is the most important thing about me how I think about God? Because everything about this passage has to do with how I view God. If I believe that God is faithful, that he is good, that he is kind and just and loving and merciful, then I am going to easily be able to submit to him and say, whatever the Lord wills. And I will easily be able to say, I will obey him. The ungodly perspective says, I have to take care of myself. The godly perspective says, God will take care of me. Turn with me over to Matthew 6. We'll close with this. Matthew 6, well-known passage, verse 24, 25 and following. I want to read it just in light of what we've seen this morning. Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, 
Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much uh, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to teach our children that our God will take care of us. We don't have to be anxious about tomorrow, and we should have him in our thoughts as we approach tomorrow. We need to teach our children to say, if the Lord wills, teach them that the Lord is good and that he will take care of us. Teach them that he will give us what we need, though he doesn't always give us what we want. And let me close by saying this too. Ungodliness is not even really a respectable sin. It's a serious sin. It's a sin that, as we've seen, is worthy of God's wrath. It's good to depend on God. It is wicked to ignore him. But the sin of ungodliness, too, can be repented of. You can come to the throne of God, clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and say, forgive me. And he will do so. If we, forget, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus died to cover the sin of ungodliness. If you are a person and you see today that you live a divided life, that God is removed from your thoughts as you proceed through your days, I would encourage you, repent, seek forgiveness, and then approach the Scriptures in a way that says, God, I want to know your will for my life. And I promise you, he will show you and he will take care of you as you pursue doing his will. Let me pray. Father, uh, these, are, these are hard things. God, I confess that I diligently seek to wake up and spend time with you in the morning and I so quickly forget what I have read, what I have prayed, what desires you have put into my heart. That, that, God, as I go out into the street in my car, I can so quickly be given to, to forgetting about you and to thinking about all of my plans. Father, I, I pray that you would help us. God, I pray that you would give us a vision for what it looks like to live as your obedient servants and to trust that you will provide all that we need and more as we seek to live a life in obedience to you. God, may that be true of Hope Bible Church. Father, may we be people who see the good that we ought to do and do it over and over again for your glory, anticipating that you have many things to give us in the next world. We pray that in Jesus' name.
Amen. Uh, we are going to take together uh, the Lord's Supper this morning as we do. If you're going to be handing out the Lord's Supper, come on up here. I would ask, uh, I would invite anybody who's new, who's visiting here today, you are more than welcome to partake of this little meal with us. If you have never followed Jesus, I would ask you to refrain and, and to ask one of us uh, about what it might mean to follow Jesus so that you can partake in the future. Uh, our brothers and sisters are going to hand out the cup and the bread. Hang on to that, and I will come up here in a minute, and I will read a passage, and we will partake together.